Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mind Your Work Unscripted, a series for candid discussions with less preparation and more conversation. I'm Jose Espinoza, and I'm here with my co-host, the Count of Correlations, the Sultan of Statistics, the Duke of Data himself, Dr. Nicholas Bremner. What? I did not <laughs> ask for or earn any of these titles, but well, thanks, welcome to the to the podcast, Your Excellency. So thanks today. I feel like a special guest. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about data, and that is a very, very broad topic. Uh, but the reason we're going to be doing this little unscripted about it is because we've actually been preparing a little bit of a mini series we're going to be doing on data literacy to start off the new year. We think it's a particularly important topic that most people might want to get a little bit of an introduction to. It's quite complicated, but nonetheless, we thought we would do this unscripted today, maybe as a way of getting you interested. If, if learning about data literacy sounds really boring, uh, perhaps us telling you a bit about why we think it's important and how relevant and how prevalent it is in today's world would get you interested. Yes. Take it from the count of correlations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So basically what we want to do is we're going to tell you a little bit about where we see data kind of rising and, and becoming more important and sort of part of the conversation in, in regular everyday life. And then just hit a couple of discussion points we came up with. And as, and as always, if you're interested in hearing our opinions, you can always reach out to us on our, on our Twitter account or by email them, and we can certainly return to these topics. So Nick, do you want us to uh, get us started uh, as to where we see data becoming more prevalent in today's society? Yeah. So, I mean, everywhere, like <laughs> literally everywhere, everywhere you look, there's data. Well, th let's start there. Where, where do you find that you encounter data in everyday life? I mean, outside of your work, obviously which we should kind of put that ahead as a, as a bit of a disclaimer. We work with data all the time. That's kind of what we do as, as basically a social scientist. But in your regular kind of non-boring, I'm crunching, you know, statistics all day kind of life, where do you find that you encounter data often? Hey, man, my job is not boring. I like <laughs> my job a lot. But point taken, most people would probably find my job boring. Who knows? Um, good question. So I would say... I mean, the, the, the example that comes to mind first for me is just whenever I read anything in the news, mm. it, data is a tool that journalists use a lot. And I mean, they, they report on statistics, especially with coronavirus, right? I mean, yeah. like they're using numbers to, to illustrate, you know, how deaths are rising or falling or how cases are rising and falling. Um, there are articles about you know, how they're taking those measurements and what qualifies as a, a coronavirus-based death and what doesn't. So there's a lot of like rigor that goes into, you know, reporting these facts correctly. And the idea is to give us a good sense of what's going on in the world, right? We're able to collect this data, we're able to count it, we're able to analyze it easier. So it's easier to report on it. Um, that's, you know, one top of mind example with journalism. Um, there's also just a lot of science reporting in journalism as well. So journalists who go out and, and read the literature and report on findings. And I think this is the, the kind of journalism that often gets a, a bad rap for, you know, over-promising the results of a study. Um, and that's where we need to kind of watch out and, and read um, with a little bit of skepticism, I would say, in terms of what articles claim. Um, but journalism is just one area in general that I find that the use and communication of data is becoming much, much more common. And I think along with that kind of the popular journalism aspect of this, I've also noticed the rise of 
the interest in science-based public service radio type stuff. I mean, obviously we have a podcast, so podcasts are something that I'm, I'm pretty in tune with in terms of that. And obviously there are so many science-based podcasts that are now very popular and they dominate quite, quite a bit of kind of the, the top podcasting charts. You can think of things like Radio Lab, Science Versus is a quite popular one. Even 99% Invisible to some extent is science-y. And these all tend to to kind of pitch the notion that you can become maybe not an expert, but at least familiar with science through listening to basically journalism about it. And to the degree that, you know, you believe that they're doing a good job at kind of distilling all these scientific findings, I think it's hard to argue against the notion that it's becoming a more common thing, right? It's one of something that there is enough public interest, I think, in comparison to maybe how it was before. On the flip side of that, it's come up before because I'm sure people have noticed it as we talk about it. I'm a big fan of quite a few different sports, despite the fact that I'm completely untalented in doing that myself. And I think hmm. data is something that has also had this incredible rise in sports. It, we've had you know popular depictions of it in movies, things like um, Moneyball is a great example of, of a movie that kind of digs into the, the data-driven aspects of sports. But uh, you do notice that there seems to be a a greater reliance on analytics and data-driven decisions on at, in sports organizations and basically teams like a football team or a soccer team, et cetera. And, and on top of that, even the broadcast, even the kind of the, the consumption for, for the sports watcher includes a lot more data than it did before. I've got a question about that. As someone who doesn't know anything about sports, but occasionally watches it, I do hear announcers throw out a lot of stats, like you're referring to. How many of these stats are like useful and like handpicked carefully to to add to the view, the viewer's understanding or they just to me they just kind of seem like just tossed in just for the sake of being stats yeah. i don't know like the the first time an away game happened with like snowy weather in the playoffs or something i don't know it just it's kind of like a a fact maybe but i'm i'm just curious about that yeah, um, I, I do wonder how, like, the broadcast depiction of the stats, how careful they pick those or how much they're just trying to give their announcers something to say, something to kind of go on as, as they're discussing. Because I do notice that, that the stats seem to be a little strange. I also sometimes think that they they tend to be giving out stats that are very complicated. So in, in football, and, and many people out there, I'm sure, don't care about this, they have a stat like especially, basically called quarterback rating. And it's a, it's a single number that goes from like zero to 150 something, um, which is like a really strange scale. And they okay. just toss this around in, in many football games. They're just like, oh, you know, his quarterback rating through the first half, you know, was 132, whatever. And for people who are maybe not aware of how that stat is kind of put together, it feels really meaningless. And I think there is a danger to that. And I think what I want to highlight there is that unless you're doing a really good at describing a really good job at describing what the data you're giving out is or why it's purpose why what, what is its purpose or why is it meaningful it's probably not all that useful i can't imagine for someone who doesn't quite understand all of the different stats that go on in a football game why they would care about that one specifically it, it's quite a burden on i think on the people who are trying to share the information well with with a quarterback stat i imagine higher is better right that's true i guess i mean that's easier to understand but i still maybe i'm just the only one person questioning this but i feel like when you have stats you know that have you know decimal points and 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 that sort of thing on the screen i wonder how much the regular person watching the yearly football game during thanksgiving really cares about that or is really getting anything out of it 
Yeah. I mean, I, I have no idea what goes into the quarterback stat to calculate it, but like an, an index like that, that's, you know, I, I assume it's a composite measure or something. Yeah. Um, if higher is better, even if the, if, even if someone doesn't understand what goes into it, you still know that, you know, quarterback A with a score of 65 is, is not as good as quarterback B with a score of like 120. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least gives you a general sense of, you know, who's better than who else, but it, it kind of, you kind of put blind trust in the metric and don't really bother unpacking what it means. And you just take their word for it that quarterback B is better than quarterback A, which is kind of problematic, I would say. But the, the metric itself is intuitive in the sense that, you know, higher is better. So it just, you know, for the for the regular viewer who doesn't really care to un- un- unpack that, they they do understand it. They just don't know what it is exactly. And, and I think that's a great transition to obviously what is probably the use of data that is most aligned with the little discussions we tend to have on this podcast, and that's organizational decision-making. Obviously, I think we've all seen a a push towards organizations making more data-driven decisions, or at least more empirically supported decisions. And I was wondering, what were your thoughts on that kind of more broadly? Um, I've seen it become more common. It's hard to say, like, I have, you know, I'm, I'm an early career practitioner, I would say still. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a ton of experience um, in an organization, enough for me to really say that, oh, this has become more and more uh, commonplace. I think just based on the availability of data and particularly in HR, where, you know, I, I do have a fair amount of experience like reading about it and, and, and learning about um, how data is used in HR, um, the data landscape has evolved a lot. And so my assumption underlying that is that decision-making has become increasingly reliant on data over time. That said, from my personal experience, I haven't seen that much of a transition because I've only had a few years of experience you know, working in the company. Um, right. When I joined, uh, executives kind of started off as fairly data-driven. Um, I imagine... Um, it, it's just kind of logical that if data is not available, it's, it's harder to base your decision on data. So, you know, compared to a decade or two ago, um, HR in particular, which I think is probably the area of organizations that is, is least mature in terms of, of data fluency. Mm-hmm. Um, HR has definitely become more, more data fluent and more data driven over time by necessity and because of availability of data. Yeah, that's a good point. And we are going to talk about particularly data availability and collection in the miniseries on data literacy. But that brings up, we are obviously, I think we would probably both agree, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that maybe we're collecting more data than we were before. At least it seems that way. It's definitely easier to collect data. And Yeah, we definitely are. Are, are you for or against this uh, more data is better kind of a trend that we seem to be on? It's a tough question. I don't have a, a firm yes or no stance on it. I think that Collecting data is good if you're doing it for a particular reason. Um, I think needlessly collecting data is not good. It's potentially harmful, especially in like human resources where you have personally identifiable information, sensitive information attached to the individual or the employee. You've, you've got to be careful about what you collect and how you use it. Security and data privacy are, are really important issues. And so I'm of the belief that if you're going to collect some piece of data, you need a very good business reason for it. And you should also safeguard that employee data um, as best you can. That said, if you do have a good reason for it, I think, I think collecting data is, is good. I think it's important. You know, 
asking employees how they're doing in surveys more frequently so you can track that over time, I think is helpful if you actually action on it. If you ask people how they're doing every month and you don't do anything just because you want to know, then that's harmful and, and it's a waste of resources and time um, and erodes trust in employees. The, I think in HR in particular, the more and more data we collect, um, the more we move towards that kind of conceptual archetype of like that, that post-apocalyptic society, like the, that Orwellian society where we're being monitored constantly. Yeah. Um, and there's no room for deviation. And it just, it, you know, it, it becomes concerning in my view. So I guess, yeah, just overall, I think if you're going to collect something, you need a good reason for it. But I do get the sense that it, it, the reason is becoming less important over time. I mean, outside of organizations, obviously the reason why Google or why Amazon collects as much data as they can from from their customers is because they basically want you to, to buy more stuff or to buy specific things, et cetera. In an organization, that question obviously probably centers around instead of, well, what can we do to get more performance out of our employees or, you know, reduce turnover or, you know, improve morale, those sorts of things. I don't think those are important questions, but something that is probably really, really important when it comes to that is not just to say we want to improve performance generally, but it sounds like you're more for saying, well, we want to improve performance because of X reason and we're going to try and target it here. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, as as we're talking about this, there's kind of more layers to that that I'm thinking about kind of as I'm going. The other, <laughs> like the other part is the human part, and I I feel like as time goes on and as we we can collect more data, um, there there will always be a business reason to collect data. You know, to to squeeze more productivity out of someone, to you know make sure people are showing up or or whatever, to make sure people are you know quote unquote healthy. Potentially a slippery slope because there will always be a good reason from a business perspective to collect more data if you can put it to use. But we have to balance that with the human side of things. And I think it has the potential to go too far if we're not careful about, you know, the, the ethicality of, of collecting data and what that means for, for employees. You know, we, we have to treat them as humans. You know, they're not resources. That's a good point. In, in line with that, however, how do you personally approach kind of collecting and using data yourself? I've got a bunch of principles that I, I try and abide by. The first being inconvenience employees as little as possible. So if I don't have to collect data, don't collect it. If there's archival data already available, I will use that if it'll answer my question. And so if there if there isn't something, then I'll collect new data. And in that case, I collect it from as few people as possible to try and minimize my footprint and still get a definitive and rigorous answer to my question um, to the extent possible. And then really just trying to balance the... Um, there's kind of an inherent tension between the need for collecting data fast and being expedient and having short measures, um, but then also being rigorous and trying to, you know, balance, you know, what is the, it sounds terrible. What is the least amount of rigor that I can use when collecting data without compromising, you know, the integrity of, of what I'm trying to do in a fast environment, you don't have a lot of time. Um, you can't ask a lot of questions, so you need to determine like what's the what's the bare minimum that we can do in order to to answer our questions successfully. I, I think those are really reasonable guidelines. To, to some extent, I think uh, I think I do that as well. I mean, I try to have when I do collect data, I try to have surveys that are as short as possible, both in overall length and in terms of the actual you know scales within within the survey. So if we can use three items. To assess something, why would we? Why do we need to do that instead of you know a nine-item measure? 
I, I think those are reasonable things. Ultimately, inconveniencing people, it, it sounds a little silly to say that, to say that, well, you know, we're gonna, we don't want to inconvenience people, but I think it's a reasonable thing. I think you probably also get higher quality data if, if you're conscious that people, you know, have a limited amount of attention that it can provide for you, that, you know, people have their limits in terms of how many survey items they can read or how long they can sit down with it for an interview with you and, and be, be wary of that. Yeah. It's partly respect of, of the people who are, you know, kind enough to actually provide you data. The the other thing that I've, I mean, I tend not, I don't tend not to work within an organization as a researcher. We tend to compensate people who actually participate in our surveys. One of the things that I think science has moved towards now is, is providing better compensation for people's times who are participating in research. For a long time, academics have tried to get away, given that our funding is limited, with compensating people the minimum that we can, right? The minimum incentive that we can provide people for for them to take our surveys or for participating in our studies in general. I've mm-hmm. tried to move towards a kind of a, a more ethical approach to that, right? Can we actually match, you know, a minimum hourly wage and when we're actually having people respond to our surveys? When in reality, most survey compensation is is much, much below that. And that's to avoid coercion, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like academics try a little too hard to avoid coercion. <laughs> yeah. the, the values of compensation are very, very low. If people are, you know, spending an hour responding to your study or participating in your study in the experimental condition, et cetera, um, and you're providing them very little compensation, what kind of self-selection is happening with your sample? Are you getting people who are just really interested in participating in research? Some people are that way, right? They want to know how research works and they want to be part mm-hmm. of that experience. Or are you getting people who might be desperate and who might not be paying attention? They're just doing this as quickly as possible to get the income. Um, those are all concerns. And, and there's definitely been kind of, I think, a rise of trying to address that question in, in the social sciences, especially where for a long time, we've had a history of maybe undercompensating people, I think, like you said, in order to avoid coercion. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about what kind of effects that would have on your sample. In organizations, we don't compensate people. Um, obviously. But one other thing that I try and do that I actually think this is more important than minimizing inconvenience is demonstrating that there's some kind of value given back to the employee by collecting their data. So for instance, if we do an interview or if we do a survey, I always try and follow up and at least provide some kind of debrief to the person who provided data um, and Tell them, you know, what what did we use this for? How does and, and ideally, how does this affect you? Like, how did this improve your working experience as an employee? Um, I feel like that's the gold standard that you can you can get to from collecting data. Is you know, thanks for your thanks for your information. Here's how we put this information to work to make your employee experience better for you. Um, that's what I really strive to do, and I think that that trumps inconveniencing someone. You know, someone is is going to be more willing to give you their time and energy if there is some kind of benefit to them at the end of the day. Definitely. And I think we we do have that as a as a practice for the most part for those of us who are trained as data scientists that you tend to at least provide what we call a, a debrief letter or you know a debriefing session where after people have participated in your survey, you actually engage with them and you tell them here's what we're actually why we're collecting this data and what we plan to do with it. And ideally like you said if you have actually done something with a previous collection, that is the perfect time to share. Look, here's what we did. Here are the kinds of reports. Here are the kinds of initiatives that we're trying to build off of the last previous data collection. And here's why we're doing this one now, right? We're either following up to see if those things Mm -hmm. worked or to, you know, clarify something that we found in our data before. As someone who has, you know, presented lots of debriefing letters, 
I get the sense that those don't work really well in terms of actually getting people to read them and engage with them. So <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> so like I said, I think if you can get some 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 sort of more human connection there, I think that's probably more useful to the participant. Whether that is like you said, taking the opportunity to actually tell people that and have people, you know, when you do a broader presentation of the the data, for example, have people give them the opportunity to ask questions. Or something that, I, that I've been thinking about is, could you actually use videos, right? Could you embed a video, you know, a one to two minute video at the end of your survey? That's probably a little more engaging to have, you know, the scientists or at least a representative for the research group talk about why we're doing this, um, you know, in a really short span than it is to just kind of hit people with a, a giant letter, you know, full of text that gives them citations and tells them where all these ideas came from and what we hope we will find or what we hope we're going to do with this. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for innovation in the the practice of the debrief letter. I'm thinking back to to when I used to write those afternoon studies, and you've got a bunch of citations at the end for further reading, and mm-hmm. like a lot of these journal articles are hard to digest from like a, a language perspective, and then hard to access from like a paywall perspective as well. And you know, some some individuals who are doing your research might not even have access to these articles anyway, so it's it's kind of useless. Yeah, that's definitely an issue. <laughs> but I, I like the idea of a video. I, I think that, yeah, there, there are different things you can do to improve it for sure and, and kind of provide some kind of benefit back to the, the participant. So that's kind of how we, we tend to maybe collect and use data as scientists, as individuals ourselves in our research groups. But how do you, how do you personally digest data when you encounter it? Maybe like we talked about in, in, in articles or in, in popular media, in, in the news, you know, the six o'clock news, you know, new finding having, you know, at least three cats improves your lifespan by five years, that sort of thing. How much attention do you pay to, to data when it's presented to you that way, sort of as a, as a part of an argument, part of supporting an argument, part of supporting an idea? How much attention do you pay to that? Do you do your homework? Do you go back and try to track down where do they actually get this from and, and how you know, accurate or how truthful are they being? I don't even really want to answer this question because I, I'm terrible at doing my homework when it comes to like consumption of media. There's just, here's, here's my excuse. There's way too much of it and I don't have enough time to digest all of it. So I think I, I read a lot of headlines. I read articles if they're interesting articles, but I would say it's maybe one time out of a hundred that I actually go back and look at the data. And if it's based on research, I'll actually go into the study and, and, you know, evaluate the quality of the study. It, it's something I do so rarely. And it's just, I don't have the attention span for it. I don't have the time or the, sometimes the interest as well. So I'm, I'm you know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm very guilty of that. And I think, you know, I, I am very rigorous in my work, like in my occupation, but in my personal life, I'm <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I think that is a, I think that's a fairly common experience. And I think that matches my experience as well. I think most people, when you talk about things that are really important to them, like domains of their lives, you know, like at their work, most people tend to be fairly rigorous in whatever it is that they do, right? They, they tend to put their best foot forward. They tend to kind of do things as best as they can. And you're right. I think we, we get bombarded with so much data. It's kind of hard to do that in your personal life as well. This as a plug, I think it's, it's a good place for, if you want to become more data literate, I think it does help with digesting even the, not necessarily the headlines, but even the way that it's, things are discussed in articles and media. I rarely follow up on individual data points or individual kind of conclusions drawn in an article or, or the media. But 
you can, if you read, you know, if you do go on to read the article or whatever it is, or listen carefully, you probably will find from most reputable science-based kind of journalists enough hints along the way that if you're data literate, you can get a sense of kind of what kind of data are we talking about. Um, I think for the most part, when you hear things like, you know, like, oh, chocolate is, you know, it's associated with, you know, a better increase in X thing or, or decrease in X and now chocolate is bad. You'll find that in the article, usually talk about things like associations or correlations or, you know, the study was based on, you know, 30 people. And and if you have an idea of how data is works and how it's collected and how you should analyze it and how you should, you know, draw inferences, you can kind of gauge how much you want to rely on that data in your own life, right? To make your own decisions or to talk to other people about it. So hopefully that's a plug for you to go and listen to our mini series as we put it out. And we can, you can get a little bit of an introduction to those pieces, right? You know, and how many people do I actually need to get, you know, robust findings or how do I get a sense of that, that sort of thing. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot you can pick up from the article itself um, to evaluate the quality of it without having to dig deeper. That's true. At least if it's reputable. <laughs> At least, yeah, for sure. At least if it's reputable. Absolutely. Yeah. The other, the other thing you can do is just generally um, be skeptical of whatever you read. And if it's, if it's a new finding, just recognize that it is one likely based on one study or, you know, one instance of research and just, you know, digest and say, Hmm, that's interesting, but okay, let's see if there's, there's more, let's see if there's a pattern. Generally, if something is, is a groundbreaking finding, it will receive way more media coverage in general. And so if you're trying to digest the, the whole body of research as a whole, it's, it's difficult. Yet there are a few things that kind of shine through consistently you know, are, are a little bit easier to glean from reading more and more articles. I think skepticism is a, is a great way to view most of the, the science-based findings you read about or hear about. In particular, I think that comes along with the understanding that science and the accumulation of results is a process. And it's an ongoing process basically forever. I mean, a, a really yeah. simple example would be to say, we often in the podcast talk about meta-analyses and we say things like, you know, this particular meta-analysis took, you know, the results of 200 and something studies, you know, thousands and thousands of people to say that, you know, potentially the more people are paid, the more satisfied they are with their pay. That seems like a pretty straightforward finding. Seems like pretty robust given that it's based on so many studies, but everything is a process. Every time that we do more research, we kind of get a, a, a little, a little closer to a really stable understanding of an actual phenomenon. And I think that's a good way to think about science-based media and arguments in general. Everything is kind of a, an incremental process where we're just adding a little bit more every, every time that we do a study, every time that we do a bit of research, every time we do an analysis, ideally we're adding a little bit more an incremental amount to understanding the actual underlying phenomenon. So it's really hard to come to a point where we can just say, this is definitively the answer to something. What we can say is we're pretty sure and we're pretty confident that based on everything that we've done so far, we're getting a really stable and accurate understanding of something. But that doesn't mean that it can't change or that it can't fluctuate or that it can't be further clarified. Yeah, that's really true. And the other piece is that, and we'll touch on this in the, in the data literacy series, but the actual size of the effect or the size of the relationship, it can be consistent, but it can also be so small that it doesn't really matter in practice. So, you know, you might see a study about, you know, the relationship between weight loss and chocolate or something like that. And let's just say, sure, like chocolate does help with weight loss. Um, and they find that consistently over and over and over again, um, just hypothetically. But it's possible that effect size, you know, the chocolate does cause weight loss, is so minuscule that mm -hmm. it wouldn't really matter in day-to-day -day life. 
Um, that's another kind of dimension to consider when evaluating data. Well, I, I think that's probably all you need to hear us talk about why we think this is so interesting, why becoming more data literate is really important. As Nick was saying, as we kind of become part of this world that's increasingly more data driven and collecting more data and analyzing more data, it's important for us to have an understanding of that. So because of that, like I said, we're going to be starting the new year with a little bit of a mini series on data literacy. We're, we're breaking it into three parts because there's, there's a lot to cover. Um, we're basically to, going to be covering how to collect data, how to analyze it, and then how to tell a story um, and actually communicate effectively with data. So stay tuned for that. First episode will be coming out in January. As always, you can reach us at mindyourwork.io or you can send us an email at mindyourworkpodcast at gmail.com. I also often forget about this, but we do have a Twitter account and we do read our direct messages that sometimes we get from listeners. So you can always go to twitter.com slash mindyourworkio and send us a message there as well. Really, if you find a, a little bit of a topic or a specific niche of data literacy or data analytics that you're interested in hearing more about, we're always happy to, to do future unscripted or even full content episodes around that topic. It's one of those things where we realize that, that data and analysis and collection, it's, it's a really large, very complicated thing. And we're always happy to talk a little bit more about that. This is the kind of thing that we, that we really enjoy, for better or for worse, depending on how boring you think that is. So <laughs> thank you again for listening. I'm Jose. I'm Nicholas. And we'll see you soon. All right, we can stop it. <laughs> nice.